The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello and welcome to the quarterly update podcast for the Luma Sales Core Plus Bond Fund, where the portfolio managers share their thoughts on the markets and their strategies. My name is Erica Kazal, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by Mike Glatchin, the newly named Associate Portfolio Manager on the fund. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Erica. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. And we can just dive right into it because I think, especially for fixed income markets, we had a pretty eventful third quarter. We saw pretty sustained volatility across sectors, but I think most notably we saw quite a bit of volatility in, in treasury markets. Um, to your team, you know, what do you think as far as you know, what's causing that? And do you think that volatility is likely to persist? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it was a challenging quarter for markets across the board, but certainly fixed income markets were, were the most challenged on the quarter. We had broad fixed income indices and in certain segments of the market down 3 to 4% in total returns across across the uh, landscape. Throughout that period, credit spreads were relatively tame. Mortgage spreads did widen a bit, but you're absolutely right. Far and away, the biggest contributor to negative performance on the quarter was the rise in underlying Treasury benchmark yields, where Treasury curves bear steepened significantly. We had, for instance, five-year Treasury yields move higher by about 45 basis points on the quarter. Ten- and 30-year Treasury yields move higher by about 70 to 80 basis points on the quarter. So that really is an outsized move in the upper decile um, for moves in a quarter. So definitely outsized. And um, you know, so what caused it? That's a great question. Uh, as usual, it's a confluence of factors. We'll highlight here three main factors that we think were significant and specific to this episode. So, you know, the biggest factor driving the Treasury yields bear steepening move was, in our opinion, improving growth expectations, both in the short run and in the longer run. So that's important. So growth expectations in the short run were obviously revised higher as growth delivered to the upside for, for the quarter. We had now almost a 5% uh, GDP number for the third quarter. And so what the what that's done is the markets observed that and is extrapolating forward that sort of resiliency of the economy over not just the very near term where growth expectations over for the remainder of this year and for next year have been revised higher, but really over the longer run. So the market's looking at the economy performing in line and even a little bit of above full capacity, near trend growth, a little bit above trend growth, with interest rates now at 5%, and with interest rates now having been above 4% for almost a year. So the market's making an assessment that perhaps the economy can function at full speed with these higher interest rates. Whereas prior to this last couple quarters of resilient growth, the the market seemed to assume that about 2 to 3% was the speed limit for interest rates. When we got nominal interest rates to that level, the economy would slow down. The economy has not slowed down with higher interest rates. So the market's assessing that perhaps in the longer run, the economy can function at 4 to 5% interest rates. And we're seeing that out the curve in the Treasury market. So we're now seeing longer-term forward rates for Treasuries priced around 4.5%. This is when we look out five years or so behind the the sort of near-term cyclical influences. We see Treasury yields coalescing around 4.5%, suggesting that that is about the neutral rate for the policy setting in terms of the Fed funds rate, whereas the first half of this year and for much of the past decade, we were around 25 to 3%. So we've seen a significant shift up in growth expectations over the longer run. So that's probably the biggest driver of the move to higher yields. A couple other factors worth mentioning, too. Um, and these factors are what we say pertain to sort of the term premium aspect or the additional risk 
that investors, the additional spread or yield that investors demand for taking on duration risk in the treasury market. So what's happened there, it's it's now pretty well understood that the fiscal story, the deterioration there has been a big factor driving treasury yields higher. So that began, really, we go back to the Fitch downgrade that began late summer, which by itself in isolation wouldn't be a big factor for the markets, but that was immediately followed by really remarkable deterioration in the near-term fiscal picture, where the July 31st Treasury refunding announcement showed that the quarterly borrowing needs rose by almost $300 billion from prior estimates in one quarter alone. And now we have the full fiscal year deficit in hand at $1.7 trillion, whereas coming into the year, that was estimated to be around $1 trillion. So fiscal slippage on the order of 2% of GDP. So that's that's increased expectations for Treasury supply. It's not just expectations. The Treasury has told us they're going to increase coupon supply, longer duration notes, and Treasury bonds. So that is putting weight on longer term Treasuries. And in addition to that, we have our third factor, which is more of a global factor, which is a catch-all. But in this instance, it specifically relates to probably the Bank of Japan and their relaxation of yield curve control, which was a big factor happening around the same time, late July when all this sort of coalesced into into a situation where investors all of a sudden reassessed not only the growth outlook, but also the supply and demand balance for treasuries. So a lot working against treasuries in the quarter. Question, will that will these factors persist? It's, it's the great question. Um, we think, by and large, there's going to be reversion in a number of these factors, but some factors will persist for some time. So the growth factor we think growth is going to slow to below trend this quarter and probably establish a below growth rate a below trend rate of growth for next year with obviously downturn risk being present so we think when growth slows to below trend the assessment that 4 to 5% interest rates are neutral or a natural rate will be reassessed and the market will begin to think that those again that those are restrictive levels so those longer term implied rates will come down so we don't think that's persistent we don't think we go back to the 2.5% that was assumed in the 2010s for a longer run neutral rate. So it's not a full reversion there, but we see significant scope for reversion in that longer run neutral estimate to something in the mid 3% area. Those term premium factors could stick with us for a while. The supply story is a persistent story. It is a longer term story as well. So that's something we're taking seriously. However, there's a demand side to the equation that doesn't seem to be fully appreciated when supply is the number one consideration driving term premium. We think demand will return to the market as growth slows and as inflation continues to ease. So we do think demand will come back to the market, rise to meet the increased supply, and some of those, the term premium will dissipate, but not in full. There's there's a bit of that that's going to be sticking with the market for some time. Thank you, Mike. I, I really appreciate you even starting to talk a little bit more about growth expectations moving forward because, of course, you know your team, as far as portfolio construction process is concerned, begins with taking that top-down macro view of the marketplace um, and especially where we are in the credit cycle. And the last time I was speaking with your team, you know, your team had maintained that we were in the late expansion phase of the credit cycle. So starting to see something slow down, but still a, a surprisingly resilient economy. Um, has anything changed in the marketplace to indicate that we're no longer in that late expansion phase or or any indicators pointing towards a recession for you? Definitely still in the late expansion phase of the credit cycle in our view. And you're right, there's been surprising growth, as we've discussed, and resiliency continues to be the theme. So in our view, downturn, at one point it had looked more imminent. Now it seems 
not to be the case that there's an imminent downturn. It still is likely to be the next phase in the cycle, but it does appear like that it's going to take a little bit longer than previously expected. So there's a couple of factors that we think are slowing us down in the, in the transition out of the late expansion phase of the credit cycle. The first factor being the post-pandemic excesses in you know, savings and accumulated wealth um, for the private sector. So that's insulated consumers and businesses from higher interest rates and the pressure of higher inflation. And the other factor there is related to, to this. It's prudent balance sheet management into, or, well, through and out of the pandemic period. So we had a terming out of fixed rate liabilities, and this has really insulated the market from the impact of higher interest rates. So just to look at that at a couple sectoral points, we look at the housing market and mortgage rates. So the current mortgage rate as advertised is near 8%, but the effective mortgage rate on all outstanding debt is just 3.7%. And that's up only 40 basis points from the lows of a year and a half ago or so. So a very muted rise there really, and it's having a perverse effect too, with higher current mortgage rates, we're having this lock-in effect, which is reducing turnover in the market, which is reducing the transmission mechanism even further. New mortgages are not being struck at current rates because there's no supply and there's a lack of turnover. So that's really muting the transmission mechanism there. And then if we look at the corporate markets, while yields have risen quite significantly, the effective coupon rate that, that corporates are paying on their outstanding debt has barely budged. So if we look at the investment grade market, the effective coupon rate there, the average coupon on all investment grade outstanding is now up to 3.9%, up from a low of just 3.5% just about a year and a half ago. So very mild move up there. And there's even been less of a migration to higher borrowing rates in high yield where the average coupon on the high yield market is now 5.8%, up just 20 basis points from the lows of a year, year and a half ago. So very muted rise in borrowing costs. And meanwhile, interest income's rising across the economy as, as the government's paying a 5% rate on, on short-dated liabilities. So really, the transmission mechanism's been muted, and this has slowed us down, slowed the transition through the late expansion phase of the cycle and allowed us to settle in here. So it's just taking time. The late cycle phase of, of the cycle is often the longest. We do spend about 50% of the time in this cycle. So it's, it's not uncommon to get sort of bogged down in this cycle, and that's what's happened here. But we do think the next phase of the cycle is going to be a downturn. It's always a matter of timing. And right now, yes, we have made an assessment that downturn, an imminent downturn is far less likely than we had expected for instance, say six months ago. The resilience of the economy has surprised us to the upside, but really it is a matter of time when it comes to this phase in the cycle. It's a matter of level in time, level being the level of interest rates, time, the duration at which we're holding those interest rates higher. We, we have not repealed the laws of economics. Higher interest rates will have an impact on activity. It's just a matter of timing. So yes, um, still in the late expansion phase of the cycle, a little bogged down in this phase, and that's not atypical. Um, recession does not appear to be imminent at this point in time. And of course, I don't think we can talk about you know outlook without talking directly about the Fed. Um, we have two more meetings through the end of the year. Do you think the Fed will continue to hike through that December meeting, or do you think that they'll be uh, pivoting at any point in the near future? Yeah, no, we think we think they're done hiking, um, so we don't expect any further interest rate increases through this year or or next year. We do expect that the next move will be lower. Uh, the timing of that is uncertain, although you know our best guess is somewhere around. 
the middle of next year. Um, so that's our base case. Of course, it is possible that the data continues to, to surprise to the upside and does force the Fed to, to make another move, one or two moves higher. But really, when we think about our bull case for the economy and the hawkish case for, for the federal funds rate and bond yields in general, we, we don't see in that instance the Fed taking the policy rate above 6%. Really, you asked, will they pivot? Um, you know, they sort of have done a, a little incremental pivot in terms of pivoting away from thinking about how high the interest rate needs to be to how long they can hold the rate at these levels. So it's the higher for longer mantra. And so we think that's the likely course of action rather than them hiking rates further in the face of stronger data. It's just a further commitment to hold rates at these current levels for longer. So right now they're projecting about 50 basis points of easing in the next calendar year. They can easily take that out via either the dot plot where they guide their expected moves in the policy rate or just through word of mouth um, guidance more generally. So we do think we do think they're done. There's obviously a risk they can do more, but our base case is you know, pretty strong probability that they are done hiking interest rates. Um, again, it's a pivot to higher for longer, which is which is important. And so you know, that strategy of, of higher for longer really does open the door to the soft landing outcome a little bit wider. Um, it does reduce the risk that they overdo it in terms of hiking interest rates too much in the interim. Um, it doesn't fully mitigate that risk, though, because it does remain possible that they've already done too much. There are lags in, in the transmission mechanism. We already discussed those. Uh, and those lags, as we work through those, we, we could learn that the Fed's already done too much. But it's, it is encouraging that their guidance seems to have changed. They've taken on board the idea that this increase in longer-term Treasury yields that we've already discussed as well is tightening financial conditions. It is going to increase the rate at which corporates are going to refinance. It also increases the expected rate on floating rate liabilities. So, for instance, there have been a number of people perhaps taking out fixed-rate mortgages in the 7 or 8% realm thinking in the market would guide them to think this way that interest rates would be falling on mortgages down to 5 or 6% over the upcoming years, giving them an opportunity to refinance. But with longer term rates higher, that is that is not really the signal from the market. So we think that the higher, the higher rates at term, the Fed is right to think of that as being a more proper tightening in financial conditions. So they are going to, they're going to sit tight and let that work its way through the economy. So yeah, we think they're done. We think they're guiding for a soft landing. Um, on that note, regarding a soft landing, we do think it's important to note that there are basically about three commonly cited soft landings in our history, mid-60s, mid-80s, mid-90s. In, in all three instances, the Fed eased the policy rate within six months of hitting terminal. An average they eased about 200 basis points within the first year after hitting the terminal rate. So soft landings have historically required an easing in the policy rate. So higher for longer today does open the door further to a soft landing. But if they're to achieve that, we think they're going to have to actually ease policy rates again within six to nine months of hitting terminal. And we think that was hit in July. So our timeline's around the middle of next year, roughly. But we do think in order to achieve the soft landing, they are going to have to shift off of higher for longer in the coming months and ease the policy rate. So we think they're done hiking. They're stridently on hold for now with hawkish over undertones, but we really do think if the soft landing is going to be the outcome, they are going to have to pivot to easing policy. We do think that inflation outcomes will open the door for them to walk through that, open the door a bit for them to, to deliver on that.
Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. And now shifting gears a little bit from from more of the macro discussion and looking a little bit closer at the portfolio and performance through the third quarter. Um, and as we we already kind of noted, you know, the majority of fixed income markets were were down for the quarter. The fund was down roughly four percent, um, slightly underperforming the bench, which was down around three and a quarter. Could you talk about what the primary drivers and detractors were in the portfolio that led to that performance? Yeah, yeah. So, challenging quarter all around. We, we've already discussed rates quite a bit. Really, any market segment with any meaningful duration generated negative total returns for the quarter. Ten-year Treasury on the run index was down about 5%, with 30-year bonds generating returns of negative 13% for the quarter. So, duration was the big detractor in the market, and for the fund, that's the case as well. As we had an overweight to duration, 20% longer than the benchmark in duration terms, about 1.3 years longer than the benchmark on average through the quarter. So that excess duration generated about 90 basis points of underperformance relative to the benchmark, while changes in curved slope added a little bit of further incremental drag. Um, Those detractors, though, were offset partially by positive contributions from our out-of-benchmark sectors with um, you know, uh, an allocation to sectors with high carry and lower duration. And namely, we had about a 3% allocation to CLOs and about a 4% allocation to high yield. Again, high carry, lower duration sectors that performed well on a relative basis. Uh, we also benefited on the quarter from security selection within the core sectors of the portfolio. Uh, but all in, the, the drag from duration overwhelmed all these positive contributors. And that was the most significant uh, impact on the portfolio for the quarter. And and given the current market environment, you know, talking a little bit more about positioning of the portfolio, could you just talk a little bit about how you're changing the positioning within the core sectors of the fund? Late late phase of the expansions, late cycle phase of the expansion. So this is a, a part of the cycle where we're going to be generally patient in the strategy. Um, we do like where we're positioned for where we believe we are in the cycle. So really over the quarter, no material shifts in our positioning. Um, that said, we have made some modest adjustments in the core sector in the in the third quarter. Most notably, we did reduce our underweight to agency MBS pass-throughs. We added a couple percent uh, into the extraordinary underperformance in that sector uh, more recently. Valuations in in agency MBS pass-throughs pass-throughs are now historically cheap, um, significantly cheap relative to anything we've seen um, in the past decade or so. But really, you know, elevated interest rate volatility there and, and negative technicals are a, a pretty big overhang for the sector. So we've, uh, we've covered in that underweight a bit, maintaining a slight underweight there still and being patient in, in, in covering that. But we're keeping an eye on that sector as a potential opportunity going forward. And otherwise, We've maintained a roughly 9% overweight to, to high-quality, structurally senior securitized credit, and likewise have maintained our underweight to investment-grade credit. If we look at investment-grade credit and incorporate the, the EM corporates, emerging markets, we have about a 3% underweight there and have maintained that. So in that sector, credit in general, we do think fundamentals are fine here, but it's a, it's a question of valuations at this phase in the cycle. So we do, we do view valuations as still quite a bit rich, and we're waiting for a better opportunity to dial up exposure there. It is important to note that we, even though we have an underweight to credit in the, core, in the core allocation, we do have allocations in the plus sector that give us a modest overweight to credit exposure within the fund.
Great. And you're you're setting me up for my next question because if we if we looked at the plus sectors of the portfolio, it does seem like you've you've changed some of those tactical alpha driver positions over the past few quarters. Would you say there's any sectors in particular you're finding more attractive as we head through the end of the year or, or any danger zones that you're avoiding completely? Really patient at this phase of the cycle. There's there's no particular segment of the of the plus sector that we're enamored with at the at the moment. The broad theme across the portfolio is preference for quality and high quality duration, but generally in the plus sectors, it's a it's a it's a preference for quality. That said, um, we do continue to maintain about our four percent exposure to U.S. high yield. Really, though, they're emphasizing again up in quality bias, maintaining a preference for upgrade candidates that we expect will eventually cross over into investment grade territory. Really, the the credit landscape and really the high yield picture is the exact opposite of what we discussed in in agency MBS pass-throughs, where here we have technicals really quite strong. We have a a market that's shrinking, large negative net supply. It's shrunk by anywhere from 10 to 15 percent in the recent year. Um, and the index is just higher in quality than it's been historically and continues to be the case um, where it's a high quality index that's shrinking. So the technicals are strong there, but again, it's a question of valuations at this phase in the cycle. We don't find those overly compelling, but there are going to be names in the, in that sector that we, we do like, credits that we do like, again, upgrade candidates, and really credits that we're comfortable holding throughout the entirety of the credit cycle. So we do maintain our exposure there. Um, it, the technicals are strong, and it's it's going to be a, a, a market where supply is going to be limited, um, especially if we do go into a downturn. There's going to be limited supply. So we really do want to maintain some exposure to that sector, but be very careful and selective in, in the names there and emphasizing up in quality. And we do see uh, value in CLOs. Again, here, it's, it's up in quality. All the CLO exposure is investment grade. And we've really been trying to even upgrade the the credit quality within that bucket. So really, um, again, it's about benefiting from structural seniority in that sector, and really, it's about high quality carry on a risk adjusted basis. So we're we're looking at carry with you know high break evens where spreads can withstand some widening and still generate positive total returns and positive excess returns for our out of benchmark allocations. You know, away from that, we do continue to have some exposure to emerging market sovereign bonds and local currencies. There again, it's it's stories that we like fundamentally, strong fund, strong fiscal improvement improvement stories, and really good structural stories where countries that may be benefiting from friendshoring and capital flows that were that are going to be persistent um, positive throughout the cycle. And then countries, again, with just very good fundamentals and institutional characteristics uh, across the fiscal and monetary institutions there. So uh, modest allocation there. It's really, again, emphasizing quality across the plus sectors and really stories that we like throughout all phases of the cycle and are comfortable holding. Great. Thank you, Mike. And now, kind of to wrap up, I know you've also been um, positioning duration. Well, you can position duration tactically within the portfolio. And now that we're getting closer to peak interest rates as far as, as your outlook, how are you viewing duration positioning of the portfolio today? Yeah. So, generally, we view duration as a, as a good alpha opportunity for the portfolio for some time now. We, we do see rates is moving lower and have for some time in our central case. 
And really on a probability weighted basis, we have and we continue to see rates moving lower perhaps significantly so than what is currently priced in the market. So it's really been a value proposition for us. What What is our view on the potential path for the policy rates and what the market may assign for additional premium on top of that? So what's priced in the market relative to our views? And really, interest rate duration has been a good value proposition for us for some time. Obviously, the last few months have been challenging, but you know those valuations, it, the proposition is still there in our view. And really, it's a, it's a much better starting point for, for interest rate duration from where we are today. So what's happened generally, we've discussed what's driven yields higher, but really what's happened, the bear steepening of the treasury curve, it's critical. We now have longer duration treasuries yielding above 5%. So 5% was clearly attractive to investors at the front end of the curve, and now it's on offer at the back end of the curve. So we, we do see income as being a driver as demand for treasuries further out the curve. But more importantly, as always, to us, the duration in our portfolio does provide downside protection. And should we go into a downturn in the economy, we do believe that duration will deliver some offset. So that's been a challenging view for the past two and a half years or so, as correlations have been different than we've been become accustomed to over the prior couple of decades. So interest rates, as interest rates have risen, you've seen equity prices generally go down. So there's been this positive correlation in prices between equities and bonds. And so what we're seeing now, even as bonds rally, equity prices are going up. So there's really no correlation benefit to be you know, observed in the market today. And that is that is turning investors away from duration. However, we think that's about to change. We do believe that the correlation benefits are about to reassert themselves. And the key to that view is a normalization of inflation. So when inflation's high and volatile, you can have these outcomes where correlations in prices become positive. We see that in history, and we can break that down a little further as to why that happens to be the case. But generally, once inflation normalizes around 2 to 2.5%, which we think is likely in the upcoming quarters, you're going to see a return to those correlation benefits where treasuries and equities are negatively correlated on price returns. So that's just generally speaking to the correlation benefits of treasuries and why they make more sense in our portfolio as a hedge to the riskier positions we carry and in multi-asset portfolios. But more specifically to this current situation and where rates are now, there is significant scope for yields to rally from the 5% level they're priced at today in the event of an economic downturn. So odds of a downturn have been marked down in the market. That's pretty clear in pricing. We've Odds are now about 50% as surveyed by economists, but it appears that the market is pricing a, a much better growth outcome and you know, odds as implied by, by market pricing are probably quite a bit lower. So there's really no you know there's really no premium in the bond market for downside protection right now. Again, investors seem to be shunning duration just given the performance of the last two and a half years. But from these levels, we see scope for 200 to 300 basis point rally in a very severe downturn outcome. But even in a soft landing where inflation moderates, which is our central case, a soft landing with growth slowing to just below trend, it's it's not going to be an above trend growth economy with interest rates at 5%. That's not our view. These interest rates will slow growth, will slow to below trend. 
inflation will continue to moderate. And we do think in that case, yields can rally a good 100 to 150 basis points. But it's really the downside protection where we do get a downturn priced into the market and a risk-off sentiment, sharply wider spreads, equity prices draw down even further, where we can get that positive price appreciation out of duration. So we do see it as a, a good hedge to that downside. But really, again, it's still a valuation story. And we wouldn't be as enamored with duration as we were if we didn't see it as performing in our central case, which continues to be the case today. We do see rates moving lower by about 100 basis points in our central case and potentially significantly more if a downturn does develop. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate the update from the team. um, And thank you for your time today. Um, And for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Core Plus Bond Fund and how about Mike and his team run the strategy, please reach out to your Natixis wholesaler, or you could visit us on our website at IM. Important information. Standard performance as a percentage for Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund as of September 30th, 2023. Class Y, three months, negative 4.08. Year to date, negative 1.09. One year, 1.28. Three years, negative 4.64. Five years, 0.51. Ten years, 1.80. Class A at NAV, three months, negative 4.09. Year to date, negative 1.28, one year, 1.04, three years, negative 4.87, five years, 0.27, 10 years, 1.55, class A with 4.25% maximum sales charge, three months, negative 8.17, year to date, negative 5.44, one year, negative 3.28, three years, negative 6.22, five years, negative 0.61, 10 years, 1.12, Bloomberg US, aggregate bond index, three months, negative 3.23, year to date, negative 1.21, one year, 0.64, three years, negative 5.21, 5 years, 0.10, 10 years, 1.13, 30-day SEC yield, Y, subsidized equals 4.38%, 30-day SEC yield, Y, unsubsidized, equals 4.38%, performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results, total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold, current performance may be lower or higher than quoted, for most recent month-end performance, visit im.natixis.com, performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges, performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any. Top 10 holdings for the Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund as of September 30, 2023. U.S. Treasury notes, 4.125%. November 15, 2032, 3.4% of portfolio. U.S. Treasury notes, 3.125%. August 31, 2029, 2.4% of portfolio. U.S. Treasury bonds, 2.000%. November 15, 2041, 2.3% of portfolio. U.S. Treasury notes, 3.875%. September 30, 2029, 2.2% of portfolio, U.S. Treasury notes, 3.375%, May 15, 2033, 2.2% of portfolio, Uniform Mortgage-Backed Security, TBA, 3.500%, November 1, 2053, 2.0% of portfolio, U.S. Treasury notes, 3.500%, February 15, 2033, 1.8% of portfolio, U.S. Treasury notes, 3.875%, August 15, 2033, 1.8% of portfolio, Federal National Mortgage Association, 2.5 0 0 percent March 1st 2062 1.8% of portfolio Federal National Mortgage Association 2.500% March 1st 2062 1.6% of portfolio the portfolio is actively managed and holdings are subject to change there is no guarantee the fund continues to invest in the securities referenced as of June 30th 2023 the fund held only three different currencies gross expense ratio 0.49% class Y share 0.74% class A share net expense ratio 0.49% class Y 
share, 0.74%. Class A share, as of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 31, 2024, when an expense cap has not been exceeded. The gross and net expense ratios and or yields may be the same. The 30-day SEC yield is a standardized calculation, calculated by dividing the net investment income per share for the 30-day period by the maximum offering price per share at the end of the period and annualizing the result. Unsubsidized 30-day SEC yield is calculated using the gross expenses of the fund. Gross expenses do not include any fee waivers or reimbursement. A subsidized 30-day SEC yield reflects the effect of fee waivers and expense reimbursements. The SEC yield is not based upon distributions of the fund and actual income distributions may be higher or lower than the 30-day SEC yield amounts. During periods of unusual market conditions, the fund's 30-day SEC yield amounts may be materially higher or lower than its actual income distributions. The Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is an unmanaged index that covers the U.S. dollar-denominated, investment-grade, fixed-rate, taxable bond market of SEC-registered securities. The index includes bonds from the Treasury, government-related, corporate, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, and collateralized mortgage-backed securities sectors. Fixed. Income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit. Interest rate. As interest rates rise bond prices usually fall. Inflation and liquidity. Mortgage-related and asset-backed securities are subject to the risks of the mortgages and assets underlying the securities. Other related risks include prepayment risk which is, the risk that the securities may be prepaid, potentially resulting in the reinvestment of the prepaid amounts into securities with lower yields. Below investment-grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities. Foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Inflation-protected securities move with the rate of inflation and carry the risk that in deflationary conditions, when inflation is negative, the value of the bond may decrease. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit imnatixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of October, 2023, and may change based on market and other conditions. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC, Fund Distributor, Member FINRA, SIPC, and Loomis, Sales & Company, LP are affiliated, POD 25, September, 2023, Ad Tracks, 1468912, 32, 1, Expiration Date, January 31, 2024.